In his argument for Christian hedonism, uh, Dr. Piper is he's 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 sure to make a clear distinction between glib happiness, uh, which is temporal and fleeting, and the true joy that comes only from knowing God. Uh, Dr. Piper says that uh, the Christian life is a constant battle for joy and that we must make war with our flesh daily in order to pursue the joy that is available to us in Christ. Now, I could not agree more with Dr. Piper. And what I believe that Chris Gardner from the Pursuit of Happiness and the organizers of the Declaration of Independence and also Dr. Piper himself would all agree upon is that every person, regardless of circumstance, regardless to whether you're black or white, regardless to whether you are rich or poor, regardless to whether you are a believer or not yet a believer, every person, regardless of their circumstance, is pursuing something greater than themselves. Now, as Pastor Alex has been preaching through the Psalms, he's mentioned on a couple of occasions uh, what he's called the seesaw of life, right? The seesaw of life. And, And this seesaw of life, I believe, is the constant tug of war Uh, that we experience as we attempt to pursue joy in a broken world. And Psalm 42, which again is the psalm that we're going to be going through today, uh, gives us a beautiful picture of what this seesaw of life looks like. Uh, In this psalm, the writer uses beautiful poetic language to express his innermost thoughts and his deepest emotions during a time of suffering and oppression. And I believe that Psalm 42 was written for us to help us understand that as we struggle to fight for joy in this broken world, we must cling to the hope that we have in Christ. So as I read through Psalm 42, I want you to pay close attention to two things that I think are very important. Uh, The first thing that I want you to pay attention to is the beauty of the art that is contained in Psalm 42. This is some of the most beautiful poetic language that I've ever read before. And to be honest with you, I think that some of the the most beautiful poetry can be read right here in Scripture. So that's the first thing that I want you to take a look at and, and, and appreciate. The second thing that I want you to take a look at and to pay really close attention to is the seesaw of emotions in this passage. I want us to try our best to kind of try at least to feel some of what the psalm writer felt as he penned this word, as he penned uh, these words. Now, the psalms would have been written or they would have been spoken or read aloud or sung aloud uh, to the congregation, to the gathering. So I want us to try to feel some of the emotion of this passage, and I'll try to convey some of that as I read through. So Psalm 42 says... As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. 
while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and, of, and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me by the day. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It's beautiful, beautiful poetic language. And the psalmist starts off his lament by displaying a desperation for God. He compares the longing of his soul to the thirst of a deer panting for flowing streams of water. Now, at first glance, this may actually seem like positive language. But if we take a look at verse number seven, where he says, deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. If we take a look at verse number seven and then compare that to the language of verse number one, where he says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, we can see that the psalmist is drowning in a sea of sorrow. He is pleading to God. He wants the presence of God, which he compares to flowing streams, calm and flowing streams of water. But all he is faced with right now is the turbulent seas of oppression and sorrow as wave after wave of oppression and suffering pushes him deeper and deeper into a depression. The psalmist, with the language in Psalm 42 He's pleading with tears streaming down his face. He's gone without food. He's gone without water day after day, night after night, because it seems that God is nowhere to be found. Now, it is apparent that this distance that he feels from God is a spiritual distance. But if we read the text, we also find out that it's a geographical distance as well. You see, in this context, 
the spirit of God would have most likely been acquainted with the corporate gathering. And because of the oppression of his enemies, the psalmist has been displaced from the very place where God's spirit dwelt in a special way. So this tragedy and this oppression has led the psalmist to a state of depression. And the psalmist is not going about it quietly. He's wailing tearfully. And his enemies, they see it and they taunt him. Where is your God? So tragedies like the oppression that this psalmist is facing or tragedies like the current tragedies that we see in our world today, like the, the, the terrible tragedy that happened in Orlando, Florida, or the, the mass flooding that is happening right now in Ghana, it can sometimes cause us to feel like there is a void between us and God. It can cause us to think, God, where were you in this situation when I needed you the most? It can cause us to feel as if God is not hearing or answering our prayers. And it can lead us to a state of deep sorrow. And sometimes it can even lead us to a state of deep depression, just like the psalmist here in this passage. So as we hear the psalmist pour out his soul, I want us to ask ourselves this question. Do we really grasp what he means? Do we really grasp what he's saying? As we sing songs like as the deer, as we sing songs like my hope is built on nothing less, as we sing songs like in Christ alone, do we really feel it? Do we really feel the weight of it? Have our hearts been broken by the weight of sin and the brokenness of this world to the point where it forces us to our knees as we cry out, Mary, please come Oh, Lord, please hear our cry and fix this situation. And because of the suffering or because of the oppression that we see in the world, our struggle for joy in our struggle for joy, we must remember that God is steadfast. We must remember the steadfastness of God as we struggle for joy in this broken world. We see in Psalm 42 that the depths of sorrow have caused the psalmist to recall the times when he was in the presence of God. In verse number four, the psalmist says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude Keeping festival. You see, we see that the psalmist is recalling the times where he was in the presence of God. He starts to remember the times of celebration as he would lead the gathering in praise and worship in the house of God. Now, while this passage does not give us the idea that the psalmist's situation has changed. It does give us the idea that despite being in a state of depression and despite him being oppressed by his enemies, 
the psalmist remembers God's love and he remembers God's faithfulness. The psalmist refers to God as my rock in verse number eight. He says, by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me. A prayer to God of my life. In verse number nine, he refers to God as the rock. He says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? So the psalm, the psalmist, again, he, he, he refers to God as my rock. And this is, again, another contrast to the calm streams of water that we see in verse number one. He refers to God as a rock, which shows God's steadfastness. So the psalmist, in essence, is forcing himself Despite his oppression, he's forcing himself to recall God's goodness. Because despite our situation and despite the state of the world, God is faithful. God has given us the victory over sin and death. He has graced us with his Holy Spirit. He has fixed broken relationships. He has made the crooked ways straight. So as you live your life, as you struggle for joy in this broken world, I encourage you to remember that God is faithful. Now, as many of you may or or may not know, um, I recently suffered the loss of my mom. And I'm going to try to keep it together as I talk about this. Um, And I don't usually use myself as illustrations but I think it was very fitting for the occasion. Um, But recently, I suffered the loss of my mom, and it was a trying time for me because since she had been sick for so long, it was hard for me to remember the good times that we shared. It, It got to a point that all I could remember was the wheelchair and the dialysis and the IVs and the beeping of the machines. And so it was almost as if all of the bad was blocking out all of the good times that we had shared. Uh, But one night, as my wife and I were laying in bed, and I was just laying there with my thoughts. And I had been been doing this for a while, just laying there with my thoughts night after night. I, I hadn't been eating much. As some of you may know, I like to go to the gym. I like to lift weights. And I had gotten up to about 185 pounds. I was looking pretty good, right? But I wasn't eating, and and my weight got all the way down to about 160 pounds within maybe that was a two-month period. So that's very unhealthy uh, to lose that much weight that quickly. Um, But one night, again, as I was lying in the bed, I, I became overwhelmed with the thoughts of my mind, and I began to weep to God uncontrollably, and I began to pour out my heart to God, and it was almost as if that very moment, all of the memories of my mom started to flood my mind again, and I remembered the love of my mother. I remembered the sacrifices that she made to make sure that her children were taken care of. I remembered the fried chicken. I remembered the macaroni and cheese. I remember the way that she would rub my head to put me to sleep sometimes. And 
you know, some of you may be wondering, you know, why I took the chance to share that with you. And the reason why I took the moment to share that with you is because sometimes, in some situations, we forget what God has done for us in moments of suffering and moments of trials. Now, I'm from the African-American church, and the way that they used to say it in the old church where I came from is that God was a lawyer in a courtroom. They would say he's a doctor in the sick room. They would say he's bread when I'm hungry, and they say he's water when I'm thirsty. There we go. We got us a witness in the house today. And even though they didn't have a robust theological language to describe what they meant, what they meant is that God is omnipresent. They meant that God was omniscient. They meant that God cares. They, they meant that God knows about our problems and he cares. And even through suffering, God is faithful. Now, I'm not here to give you the answers and the reasons for why God allows suffering. That's a topic that would take all day to discuss, and we probably would never be comfortable with the answers and the conclusions that we come up with. But what I do know is that the world is broken because of the effects of sin. In fact, here in Psalm 42, it doesn't give a reason for the psalmist's suffering at all. Maybe he got too high and mighty and the Lord wanted to bring him down a few notches. Or maybe he had, maybe he had been you know, betrayed by one of his loved ones or, or by an enemy or, 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 or something of the nature that the text just simply doesn't say. But what I do know is that this psalm was written so that God's people could look to it and remember that God is faithful and that God is steadfast in the midst of suffering. And we can cling to the hope that we have ultimately in God. So in our struggle for joy, we must realize that ultimately there is a solution. In our struggle for joy, we must realize that there is a solution. Now, it has been said by many uh, that the Psalms uh, not only speak to us, but they speak for us. And I think that Psalm 42 is a great example of that uh, because it basically holds up a mirror uh, to us and, and shows us ourselves. And I think that the psalmist does something very remarkable here. It's almost as if it's uh, like, uh, you know, ancient psychology or something. Uh, or, uh, but what he does, in essence, it shows us the way that every person deals with their problems and the solutions to their problems. He shows us the ways that we all, regardless of believer or non-believer, we all deal with our problems essentially in three ways. And I'm going to discuss those really quickly. We all deal with our problems essentially in three ways. The first way is the personal. So personally, we say, I'm my problem. If I could only look better, if I could only be in better shape, 
If only I could get LASIK. If only the corners of my hairline would fill back in. I would be much better off. So that's the first way. The second way is the relational. The relational says, I'm my problem. Excuse me, you're my problem. Or you're my solution. It says, if only you would get yourself together. If only my wife or my kids or my employers or my employees or something in relation to me, if only that was better, then all of my problems would go away. So that's the second way. So the first way was the personal. The second way was the relational. The last way is the ethereal. And what ethereal means, I know that's a lofty word, but it's what I, what I came up with. <laughs> but the ethereal deals with heavenly things or, or things that are universal. So essentially what the ethereal says is, God, you're my problem. Or the mojo of the universe, if you're an unbeliever, the mojo of the universe is my problem. And if, if God, if you would only fix this situation, then I would be much better off. And essentially, we see the psalmist doing the same thing. It's very unique that as he is lamenting and pouring out his soul to God, he inadvertently shows us the ways that we deal with our problems. But what the psalmist does that is so great is that he shows us the right way to find the solution to our problems. He starts out himself saying that I'm the problem. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? So he points to himself as the problem. And then he says, well, it's my enemies because they're taunting me. So you're my problem. And then there's even a sense in which he points his finger at God and says, God, if you would only fix this, where are you? So he says that the ethereal is my problem. But what he does is shows us that there is but one solution. There is but one hope. There is but one thing that we can put our hope in during a season of suffering and depression as we fight for joy. After the waves of raw emotion and during the seesaw of life, the psalmist ultimately resolves to put his hope in God. The psalm writer understood that God's previous faithfulness was enough to ultimately put his hope in. So as we struggle to fight for joy in this broken world, I say, as believers, we must put our hope in Christ. Now, it should be encouraging for us to put our hope in Jesus. And the reason I say it should be encouraging to us to put our hope in Jesus is that we see this same struggle for joy in the life of Christ. Yes, God in the flesh dealt with the same seesaw of life that we deal with every day. If you don't believe me, I'll explain it to you. So we see that Jesus was born to the heights. He was born to the singing of the throngs of heavens, of the heavens. He was born to gifts. He was born into a joyful celebration. But moments later in the narrative life of Jesus, he was almost the victim of an attempted murder. 
we see that Jesus fed multitudes, that he healed sick people, that he raised dead people. But he was ultimately betrayed by one of his closest disciples. We see that Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey to the shouts, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But ultimately, he was murdered and hung on a cross. But scripture tells us that Jesus endured the suffering. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And because of his sacrifice, we can put our hope in Jesus, even though the world is broken, even though the effects of sin are still at work today, we can cling to the hope that is in Christ's death and in Christ's resurrection because he has secured an eternal hope for his church. So when everything around us seems hopeless, we can rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ because he has promised to his church that one day he will make all things new. And I plead to you that if you are not yet a believer and you have not experienced this hope, I plead with you that you would come to know Jesus, God in the flesh as your Lord and Savior, the one that died for the sins of his church. I pray that you would come to Jesus in faith and repentance because the happiness of this world is temporal. The happiness of this world is fleeting. But there is true joy and there is true hope and there is true security in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, as I wrap it up, I want to read to you from the Valley of Vision. Some of you guys may be familiar with this, uh, but it's a collection of prayers that were written down by the Puritans. And just as Psalm 42, uh, it's written down in beautiful poetic language. And I think that it captures the heart of Psalm 42 almost better than than anything else does. So I want to read this to you. And as I read it, excuse me, as I read it, I want us to make this the prayer of our hearts. It says, Jesus, that's the wrong one. I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it. Here we go. Longings after God. My dear Lord, I can but tell thee that thou knowest. I long for nothing but thyself. Nothing but holiness. 
nothing but union with thy will. Thou hast given me these desires, and thou alone canst give me the thing desired. My soul longs for communion with thee, for mortification of indwelling corruption, especially spiritual pride. That's my testimony. How precious it is to have a tender sense and clear apprehension of the mystery of godliness, of true holiness. What a blessedness to be like thee, as much as it is possible for a creature to be like its creator. Lord, give me more of thy likeness. Enlarge my soul to contain fullness of holiness. Engage me to live more for thee. Help me to be less pleased with my spiritual experiences. And when I feel at ease after sweet communings, teach me it is far too little I know and do. Blessed Lord, let me climb up near to thee and love and long and plead and wrestle with thee and pant for deliverance from the body of sin. For my heart is wandering and lifeless, and my soul mourns to think it should ever lose sight of its beloved. Wrap my life in divine love, and keep me desiring thee, always humble and resigned to thy will, more fixed on thyself, that I may be more fitted for doing and suffering. Amen. Make that the prayer of your heart. God bless you guys.